Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Transformation for any business is tough, especially in these uncertain times. But when you're one of the largest and most iconic companies in the world, the challenge is even greater. So how do you leverage a legacy brand and catalyze a new future while staying true to your purpose? And how do you do it in ways that unlock enormous business value, innovation, and positive impact on countless lives? That's what you'll discover on this week's episode. So let's dive in. From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead With We. I'm Simon Mannering. And each week, I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. Today, I'm joined by Linda Boff, Global Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at General Electric, a world leader in energy, healthcare, and aerospace. And we'll discuss how a global leader reimagines itself as three separate public companies while still being an authentic expression of its long-standing purpose and impact, and how from a communications point of view, you navigate such dynamic transformation in ways that infuse the company with new life and growth. So Linda, welcome to Lead With We. Simon, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. And Linda, everybody knows who GE is. It's so ubiquitous all around the world. But I actually think that few people truly understand the depth and breadth of what GE is. So can you give us a sense of the shape of the company, the industries that it touches, the lives around the world that sort of have come to know GE? Just give us a sense of the shape of the company. Simon, thanks for starting off there. I really appreciate it because GE is 132 years old, founded by somebody very famous, Thomas Edison. And over the years, we have done many things. Some of them we're still doing. We're still manufacturing jet engines after having manufactured the first jet engine. We're no longer in the light bulb business, despite the fact that we manufactured the first light bulb. So the texture of GE today is still a very global company, 170 countries, 170,000 odd employees. But we're a company that is really in three sectors, aerospace, jet engines, services, jet engine technology. That's one. The energy sector. So we have a company that called GE Vernova. We'll talk about this. We'll be spinning it next year. And in GE Vernova, we're in gas power, we're in wind, we're in grid technology. And then earlier this year, this calendar year that we're in, 23, we spun off GE Healthcare, which is a wonderful now public company that makes all kinds of healthcare technology touches 2 billion patients a year through their technology. So that's our basket, so to speak. And all three of those companies go to market as GE Aerospace, GE Vernova for Energy, and GE Healthcare. And that provokes so many questions in me from a strategy point of view, from a communications point of view, from a business operations point of view. Help me understand, how do you bridge a legacy company and brand like GE 
through to these new sort of three entities, just from a strategic communications point of view? It's such a perfect question because when we announced in November of 2021 that we were going to separate into three public independent companies, one of the things that was a strategic question was, how are we going to go to market? And we announced the separation. We did not announce the names of the companies. We did not announce the brands. And Simon, we took six months to go to the marketplace, to talk to customers, to talk to investors, to talk to employees before we determined that we would go to market first with the GE moniker. And second, we looked at the three names and one we more or less called GE Healthcare, capital C to emphasize the patient side of things. GE Aviation became GE Aerospace. We widened the aperture a little bit. And our energy and power and wind businesses took on a new moniker, GE Vernova, which is a name designed to mean both green and innovation, Ver and Nova, but importantly was a tent of sorts for what were 12 disparate businesses. Now you may say, why are you talking about the names? Each of these three companies underneath this go-to-market name For GE Aerospace, it's about the future of flight. And I know we're going to talk a lot about purpose. For GE Vernova, it's being a leader in the energy transition and moving from electrification to decarbonization. And for GE Healthcare, it's about treating every patient precisely how they need to be treated. So it was, I have to tell you, it's been, gosh, almost the two-year anniversary of when we announced wow. separating. And I'm both energized and exhausted. By no, what I'm sure. Have been because it really has been this idea of giving birth to three companies. But as you intimated, with a foundation around innovation, around technology, around stability the world over. We're the kind of company where you really want stability. You want to be able to trust the products we put out in the marketplace. Absolutely. And there's that inherent tension when you've got a massive sort of restructuring like this, where you've got the lens of the street and the business opportunities out there and the ever-changing business landscape globally. And at the same time, you've got that foundational purpose. It's an inherently purposeful company. And each one of these sort of different expressions are now a unique expression of that foundational purpose. So where do you start? Does it start on the business side and through sort of reverse engineering out of the future? Or does it start from the foundational purpose and that is an animating force into how you're going to carry that forward to the future? Where does it begin? Yeah, it's chicken and egg, I think. It's business strategy, of course, because everything starts with the strategy of what game are we playing? How are we going to win in the marketplace, right? You can't divorce that. You can't divorce where are we going to focus. And a big part of separating into three companies is focus. So we can focus more on our customers on the marketplace. We can allocate our capital better. So business strategy, 100%, and purpose, 100%. Now, I know that that's not an equation that really works, but GE is a a company that has always been purpose-led. Always. We have always looked around, as Edison famously said, at what the world needs and tried to solve those problems. And we pride ourselves, perversely, a a little bit on solving really tough problems. The things that we take on, decarbonization through modernizing the grid and wind technology, these aren't little jigsaw puzzles. These are really big challenges. 
driving efficiency in aerospace. So I actually find it hard, genuinely hard, to pull apart the purpose and the mission from the business strategy. Mm. And I think as you and I were saying right before we got on, we're a company that has always existed on the purpose and impact of what we can do. And it's never been a cause celeb. It's Mm. never been, oh, what's popular now? It's baked into who we are. And by no means are we spiking the ball. These are areas, as you and I both know, where there's just the day you think you're getting ahead, you have to remind yourself there, there's you know still a long way down the field, but but that's what we work at every day. And then how do you resolve this tension? There's always the expectations of the street. There's always the competitive landscape. There's always stakeholder expectations at the same time that all of these issues that we're facing from the climate crisis to biodiversity to all these different things, they're also marketplace opportunities in disguise. So do you look at it and go, okay, great. We see an inherent problem like a decarbonization and really reach out to solve for that issue. Or do you look at the business landscape and say, how do we need to evolve? That's still an authentic expression of our purpose. What is the animating force at a leadership level? So Simon, when you think about short-term value and long-term value, it has to be both, right? You have to ride on both sides of that highway. I think what was interesting for GE, and I'm going to go back five years to when Larry Cole became CEO, and he joined the company, and we talked about two things consistently, and really only two things for months and months. One was delevering the balance sheet, something we've now done $100 billion later, so we have a balance sheet we can play off of. And the second was strengthening our businesses, starting with our power business, and power has had a $4 billion swing from losing $2 billion to going, obviously, in the opposite direction. Right. The other thing when I think about the business, the Wall Street side of things, is there was a lot of trapped value, so to speak. There were aerospace, aviation investors that wanted to invest in a pure play aerospace company, likewise healthcare, likewise our Vernova power mm. company. And I know you didn't have me on to, to brag about our stock, but it's done really well. It's up 70% since we separated healthcare last January. So our investors saw a lot of goodness, and that's gratifying, right? To work at a public company, you work for your investors, you work for your board, you work for employees, and you, and you want people to do well. That's part of the remit. To be able to do that while we are pursuing things like leading the energy transition or being a first mover in some of the technology around aerospace that will drive efficiency. What's the expression? A chef's kiss? The expectations of so many stakeholders is a challenge that every company faces right now. And we're talking about the investor class right now, but you've also got employees and you've got your suppliers and you've got this sort of global supply chain. And I know that you oversee global marketing, brand, content, digital, sponsorship, your remit, and as well as the philanthropic and global learning sides. One of the biggest challenges in a transition like this is the internal communications piece. Once you've made that decision at a leadership level, You've got to take everybody with you. And the employee base is a much more dynamic kind of population now than ever in terms of their engagement about the role of a company in the world and so on. So having interrogated this decision for six months and really thought it through, how did you start to take the internal associates with you? How did you roll out that process so that they're excited? I have found that the employee population, the internal community is by far the most discerning. By far, they care so deeply. They're so invested. And 
we have tried for years, certainly the whole time I've been in, in this role and, and my team is so good at this, to always think about our employees first. Right. Always. Now, when we made the announcement about separating into three companies, that was market moving. You can't tell employees something like that before you announce two in the world. Right. But even then, we were ready, Simon, with just an enormous amount of communications. When we made the decision about how we were going to brand these three companies, the first thing we did was an employee broadcast. And it was terrific. Our three CEOs were in three different locations around the world. I was in a fourth. And we spent, I think it was about an hour, telling our employees what we were doing, why we were doing it, what led us to these decisions, what their role would be in it. And it, that matters so much for them to, A, hear it first, B, they were part of the decision. We had spoken to thousands and thousands of employees around the world as part of our decision-making process. But I think in general, and, and where I take your question as well, is I think today, Maybe more than ever. I've always felt this to be somewhat true. I think today it is, it's almost scripture or something. Employees want to work for a company with purpose, mm. a company that matters, a company that has a conscience. And I think that as we talk about defining the future of flight, that's something that gets people really excited. Right. I do. It captures your imagination in a way that's almost childlike. It's like that passion that has fueled the company and the individuals. Before we move on to the communication side more specifically, I want to ask from your line of sight at the leadership level, there's two things that you've lined up, which is the role of purpose with inside the organization in the past and moving forward, and also unlocking value for the business. And at the risk of oversimplifying, have you seen those two come together? Because you've had a great earnings call, you've seen healthcare, you've seen these, these turnarounds happen, but it's still been driven by purpose as well. What does that equation look like? having gone through such a dramatic transformation? And that's a wonderful question. I'm reflecting as I was listening to you on the last five years. The last five years, which have only been the latest chapter in 132 years, have shown me very clearly, and this is after a 20-year career at GE, for Wall Street, for our investors, you have to earn the right to be able to talk about what you're going to do next. If you have things that you have to clean up, and we have things we had to clean up, our balance sheet, mm -hmm. strengthening some of our businesses, those were table stakes. And until we were able to work our way through those elements, and, and we did, thankfully, under Larry's leadership and a great deal of hard work by the teams, that frees you, in my view, a little bit to then go back and remind people what it is you're playing for. Now, we were always playing for those things along the way, but when you've got a little bit of a cloud and we had a little bit of a cloud, you have to clear that. Yeah, that's really interesting you say that. I love how you put that. You've got to earn the right to command people's attention, including investors and so on. And I also think you've got to earn relevance to the future. You've got to articulate a vision, a role for the company, its latest expression that really is compelling to all of those stakeholders, including investors. And I know that the big digital transformation at GE was a big part of that process because you've got industrial and digital, you've got this huge kind of tensions between past and future and so on. How did you lead that transformation? What was that like to get such a capital invested 
real world behemoth like GE to have the relevance in digital and social terms, that can't have been easy. Oh boy, it wasn't. So I break it into two parts and we can go, we can hit them both. Or if there's one you'd rather hit for uh, harder, that's fine. So one is with my marketing hat, right? GE has been an early adopter of digital marketing, digital media. We have found, Simon, over the years that in the simplest possible way, our marketing needs to be as innovative as the company and our technology. And in some ways, that's our forever brief. That is, we may dress that up a little bit. We may dress it down a little bit, but that's our brief for us, certainly as long as as I've been here. At the same time, in 2010-ish, we really went full forward in terms of becoming a digital industrial company and realizing, as you said, that we make these amazing machines, big iron, so to speak. But big iron without big data was not necessarily going to help our customers. So terrific that we could build big onshore wind farms. But if we didn't have a data layer on top so that our operators would understand how those machines were behaving, and if there was something they needed to tend to and they could see it on a dashboard, well, that wasn't very smart. So we were early in terms of the digitization of industry. And honestly, we learned a lot along the way. Some ways we were too early. Well, it was always astonishing to me as somebody who, my first book I wrote, We First, 11, 12 years ago, G was one of the companies out front, almost making the sort of industrial nature of what you do so compelling and fascinating because we never got to see behind the curtain before that because we didn't have the tools and the platforms available. And it became this sort of amazing sort of engineering eye candy in a way to see what goes into those things that we take for granted that actually make our lives possible. So I remember that that feeling very well. We're now in an age, and I've just come from a couple of marketing conferences and so on, where everyone's falling over themselves around AI and amongst blockchain and so many other sort of arguably transformative technologies out there. How does GE then step into that future? And that, what's that dynamic like the innovation driver inside the company, because it's almost like the marketplace and technology is moving ahead so quickly now that for any company, it's getting foothold and handhold and foothold. You're clambering up this wall of relevance all the time. So what's the next lurch forward for GE in those terms? And and what's the dynamic inside the company to achieve that? Yeah. uh, So we are a test and learn culture in many ways. Again, I'll I'll quote Edison. He found a thousand ways to try and fail at a light bulb before he got the the one that worked. So there's a high aptitude and interest, Simon, at GE in experimenting. That's always been the case. If you then layer on culturally, something that we have really leaned into over the past five years, and that is Kaizen, the Japanese idea of continuous improvement, which has become very rooted in how we work to look at some of what we're seeing in large language models and gen AI becomes not a, how are we on Monday going to change by Tuesday, but how are we going to learn along the way? Having digitized machines, that's not new. But understanding how AI is going to speed that up and improve things more, it's such early days, but I like the chances of a GE that has that invention culture DNA to test our way into it. But 
do it smartly. When you're in heavy industry, the first thing you think about is safety. You don't start anything. We don't even start a meeting without safety. So you start with safety, quality, cost, delivery, SQDC. If that's the way we're going to approach how we do business and what is going to help our customers, AI has to be additive to that. Not a substitute, but additive. If I had to characterize business right now, it's like a game of Twister where there's just inherent tensions in every direction where everybody's pulled in all directions at once. So I want to point to another tension, which is here we are being challenged to be relevant in terms of AI and have this innovation driver at all times. At the same time that you're trying to make sure that sustainability is fully integrated in the business. And there's huge costs and bandwidth demands of doing that upstream with your stakeholders, scope three, all these different things. Could you give us a sense of how at the same time, you, like every other company, is trying to move forward, you're also re-engineering, whether it's through the lens of, I know there's a retreat from the term ESG for various reasons, but in practice, it just really hasn't changed. But sustainability or DNI or inc- you know incubating the next generation of engineers, what's being done to sort of really ensure that you're walking your own talk at the same time as you're enabling that for others? Yeah. So when we think about sustainability and we think about the role that GE can play, A, it has to be in collaboration with our partners, whether that's a new engine platform and system that we work on with our partner Saffron and our customers, be it how do we make sure that the electrical grid that we all know about, because it's it, you only really think about it when things sure. work and they're blackouts, but this is an aging system that badly needs what we were talking about a moment ago in terms of digitization. You don't do it alone. You do it with partners and collaboration. So so I would say that's one thing. When we talk about walking the talk, a program I would love to just highlight quickly, because I think this is an example of what companies can do, and certainly it's an example of what we did. We're a company that has a lot of engineers, fantastic engineers, world-class engineers. But when you're a young person, you don't necessarily know what engineering is. And depending on the communities that you grow up in, it may not be a career choice that either was open to you, or even if you know about it, you have the means to go after it. So a couple of years ago, we created something called Next Engineers. So we took the E of STEM, and that's the letter in STEM that I think we we feel su- such great heart for. And we created a program, a global program, it's in four cities, but will be expanding, where we help young people in middle school, high school, and ultimately through scholarships in college, pursue a career in engineering. And I highlight that, is that the answer? Of course, it's not the answer. We'll touch hundreds, hopefully thousands of people. But I think as companies think about what they can do and how their own employees can be hands-on, a lot of this is through the volunteering of our employees in these communities where they can take something they're so passionate about and expose young people who might not have had that opportunity. So I think it's a little bit of you do what you can at the macro, the product side, which for us is where we will move the needle the most when it comes to decarbonization. But I also think you do what you can at the community level, right? And it's got to be both. It's not one or the other, at least it hasn't been for us. I, I, I totally agree. I actually think that so many companies feel an increased pressure to tell the world about what they're doing and the impact that they're having, but I actually see it differently. I see that really any company now needs to position itself as a platform on which 
their employees or customers or consumers activate their own agency for change. So for an employee, how do they want to show up as an engineer and make a difference? As a customer of GE, how does partnering with GE allow them to have the impact that they want in the world? As a consumer, buying that product, what does that look like? And I think there's a huge force multiplier potential to that when you realize it's not about you telling the world what you're doing, but rather what we can all do together. Have you noticed with the younger kind of cohorts of engineers coming through, is there a tangible shift in how they look at the role of business and what they're looking for to work when working for one of the three different expressions of GE now? I wish I had a story or a firsthand anecdote to give you. I don't. But what I can say that I have noticed is that I think for some of the young people we're talking to, the ability to pursue both their passion in terms of something like engineering that they've studied and combine that with focus around a field like aviation or healthcare or, for Mm. that matter, energy, I think has a lot of appeal. Now, I don't know if that's part of, well, there are fewer conglomerates these days. People want to be more specific. But I do think there's something that we are starting to notice in terms of not just being able to apply their craft, engineering in this case, but to be able to do it with specificity around flight or around decarbonization or around healthcare has a lot of appeal. Is there more purpose built in there? I think there is. I think it'll probably, Simon, be at least a couple of years before we can really tease that out. But you certainly feel it when you talk to young people who are interested or joining the company now. I want to ask you a real-time question, which I'm fascinated about, which is this tension between singularity and specificity. And what I mean by that is you've got energy and aerospace. You've got these three different expressions of GE now. And at the same time, you've got the singularity of the GE brand. So as you're rolling out these various spin-offs, is the, from a communications and marketing point of view, Sometimes we, the way we talk about it at we first is it's a movement of movements where GE has its own movement, a foundational centralized purpose. And then you've got your individual sort of expressions through healthcare and, and energy and aerospace. So will you be activating them each independently through a communications and marketing point of view? Or will there be cross-pollination between them? Or will it point back to GE as a sort of as a unifying entity? What's the sort of communication strategy between the three of them? I feel like you were in a meeting with me last week. So for years, I used to think about the communications, marketing communication strategy at GE. GE is a branded house, right? Right. GE was the umbrella and the values that the brand attributes and values of technology, innovation, optimism, solving the world's toughest problems sat at that level and they trickled down to the businesses. And we can debate how whether it was a trickle or a cascade, but it sat up here. I now firmly believe, and this has happened again over the last two years, that we are no longer the umbrella, but I'd like to believe that we're the foundation on which these three companies and some of our licensees that carry the name appliances and lighting are building on top of that. And what we have tried hard to do, and we've set up all the things you'd expect us to, brand governance, and good hygiene around all of this, is that all three of our businesses will 
feel the sturdiness of that foundation. We'll understand, as you said, when we opened this discussion, that GE is a brand that is known worldwide and embrace that and embrace the DNA that GE stands for. But as they go forward, they'll build on top of it. And I firmly expect them to do some editing. I Mm. firmly expect them to take some things and leave some things. But in my heart of hearts, I believe we've built a brand that is for the ages and that gives a foundation to grow from not one that pushes you down. Right. So that's literally how I think about it. And I see it really clearly when I say that. I couldn't agree more. I think one of the big mistakes companies make is they unconsciously or not map across this top-down command and control mindset when it comes to a communications point of view, because that applies to their org structure or their supply chain, whatever it might be. But I believe you've got to turn that pyramid upside down and really be an animating force for the various businesses, as you said. And with that in mind, I've got a question that everyone, when you have this level of complexity, there's always so many things to tease out. But one of the challenges I've seen is the communication between, say, G at the enterprise level through to the businesses and then between the businesses at a tactical level in terms of how they're bringing the purpose to life, how are you going to make sure that the communication from the macro to the tactical is managed so that the various businesses feel connected in a way to the GE brand at the same time as the GE brand feels connected to the businesses? So I think you put your finger, Simon, on one of the things that is one of those Superman challenges. With great power comes great responsibility. We have a powerful brand. We have a brand that has a lot of awareness. We have a brand that opens doors the world over. And that was a key part of our decision in keeping that brand, that it opens doors in in Mumbai, not just Memphis. It will behoove the people who are not necessarily sitting around the table today who've grown up with the brand the way I have and my counterparts have, but the folks who come next. Mm. And I truly believe that there's some hopes of brand purpose, brand impact in the world will continue. Now, I think it'll be a little bit of freedom within a framework, so to speak. Right. And as I always say, it just depends on how thick that frame is. It's been thick. It's been thick the 20 years I've been here. It will not be that thick. It will be thinner. But I think our brand is worth, inner brand measures it as about $20 billion a year. I don't think you walk away from that too easily. So despite the fact that we have the tactical mechanisms in place with brand governance and the right committees and the right brand books, people also have to take a little bit of that leap. And I hope they do. That'll be my parting wish, right? Is just... It's knowledge, but it's also faith because the GE brand has always been about knowing, but also about feeling. And I think that's separated it a bit. That's very true. The possibility of engineering and the origins of the company with Edison and so on. I think when you want to take a company in a new direction, when you have an acquisition, when you have any type of restructuring, that's where the purpose plays such a powerful role because it really reconnects you kind of to be heart-led as well as head-led. Yes. that drive the things you do with your hands. And I, I think sometimes the power of a purpose, particularly in those moments of transformation, is sometimes undervalued. And through your marketing lens, you've got such a wide breadth of communications to oversee. One of the distinctions I've noticed in terms of what really resonates in the marketplace, peculiar to where we are now and how savvy customers, consumers, the media is, is it's less about marketing a story and it's much more about documenting a truth. Yeah. 
And so when you think about all the content demands and communication demands that you have to answer, what's the spirit behind the marketing and communications of GE? Like, how do you think and feel about it so you know when this is GE or this is not? We would say this or we wouldn't say that. Yeah, I love, love, love this question because I had been right there with you where I'm reviewing work or looking at creative and thinking, well, that's great, but that's not us. Yeah. And so to me, it's a few things. Years ago, if you'll permit me a story, I had a group of folks who were like a digital advisory board. Simon, this was the early days. We were all just trying to figure out what we were doing. And I recall saying something in the meeting. I was trying to explain some technology. I don't even remember what the technology was. And I kind of half apologized and said, well, you might find this a little dull, but this is the inner workings or what have you. And somebody around the table said, stop, never apologize, embrace your own interestingness. And to this day, that moment is so indelible to me because I think that GE is so unbelievably interesting. And it's interesting on our terms. We're not trying to compete and be more interesting than TikTok or more interesting than Nike or Coca-Cola. We're interesting on our terms. And it goes back a little bit to what we were talking about. We take really tough problems and we delight in trying to solve them. We delight in it. And we do it, you said it a moment ago, heart and head. It's never enough to convince people to know something. It's always about how they're going to feel. And if you don't have the feels from watching a piece of communications from GE, we haven't done it right. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second where we've taken a fair amount of license is this idea that as a company that has pushed boundaries, we have permission to do that on the marketing side too. So being first, being early is okay. Sometimes we'll scrape our knees and we'll do something and we'll say, oh, wow, that was, we were a little too early or we weren't relevant enough to the right audience. But we give ourselves permission to experiment in our marketing. And then the last part, there's sometimes it's a wink, sometimes it's a smile, sometimes it's a, just a little bit of charm, but there's something about GE work, GE communications, that's so deeply human, despite the fact that we're an engineering company that makes things out of steel and iron and metal and electrons. It's interesting you say that. It forces me to ask you a question, a related question, which is, you give keynotes all around the world at marketing conferences. And increasingly, I've been around a while, you've seen the role of technology throttle up in the mix of what it means to be a marketer. And it's almost like we've all been cast in the role of data scientists these days, and you've got to surface up these insights and so on. How would you characterize the role of a marketer today? What would you say their job is? This is not an original line. In fact, I think I first heard it from Indra Nui in one of those early Zoom calls during COVID, early days of COVID, but it stuck with me. She said on that call, marketers are the soul of an organization. And the reason I love that so much is it's got to be more than data. If we don't know how to measure, if we don't understand how to use data to reach an audience, shame on us. But that's table stakes. I don't think you get to the top of an organization or you move your organization forward 
measurably if you don't understand how an organization ticks and what is going to really advance the company based on this beautiful combination of business objectives, purpose, and kind of the DNA, the soul of the company. And so I that comes to mind. I'm a huge fan, Simon, as I think you know, of storytelling and really figuring out how to craft a story for us. Often it's about being unexpected. You expect GE to show up a certain way. And when we don't, when we do have a smile, when we do have a sense of humor, when we do make you tear up a little bit, you're thinking, huh, that's interesting. Or when we show up first to a platform. So I think for marketers, it's not easy, is it? You've got to be great at data. You've got to be relentlessly creative. You've got to think about growth and what your business strategy is. But is there a better job if you could put all that together? I don't think so. Yeah, I agree. It's more exciting than ever. But I do think those tensions are a little bit bewildering for a lot of young marketers and marketers more broadly. I think you've got to be so many different things on different levels now. And I agree with you. I feel like it's about unlocking the innate humanity within us through the power of storytelling. And, mm-hmm. and specifically through the, the lens of Lead With We, it's like that connection to each other and the planet that I think is so part of our DNA that we may have lost sight of for various reasons at different times, but it really is our through line for how we're going to capture business marketplace opportunities, how we're going to solve for our future, and, and how we're going to have a more joyful experience of life, quite honestly, instead of you know one that's quite so divisive. You have been, you and I have both been entrepreneurs for some time. We started out a long time ago, and then you've had enormous success in terms of Lifetime Achievement Awards and Hall of Fame and so on, all that sort of thing. What would your advice be for a young marketer today starting out in the industry? What should be their compass when you've got this complexity, this breadth of demand, this degree of challenges that we're all facing? What would you say their starting point should be and something that should be a bit of a true north on the way through their career? I'm glad you asked the question because I one of the things I fear is that because of everything you just talked about, we are not as welcoming these days to young people as we need to be because it is overwhelming. Am I going to be a performance marketer or am I going to be a creative? I just, I think it can be quite daunting. When I was a long time ago getting into you know this field, it was really important to me to work hard and become an expert at a few things. So early on, I did marketing for software and tech companies. I went to CES when I was 20 years old. I think back, I knew nothing, but there I was, you know, working CES. And it was really important to me to feel as though I had some knowledge about a body of work versus a little knowledge about a lot of things. Now, I think as you get more senior in your career and you're supervising a variety of things, you can afford to be a little bit more of a generalist. I certainly rely on my team to go much deeper than I can on, gosh, pick something, financial communications. I have the world's best financial communicator. I can't hold a candle to her. But I think as a young person, figure out what you are interested in and maybe as well what you're good at and become a bit of that expert around the table. You don't have to know it all. You have to know a couple things, but you have to be able to be confident when it's your turn to contribute. That would be one. And I think the other is, oh God, it sounds so old-fashioned when I say this, but work really hard. It doesn't, it's not about, 
hey, I just did this and three months later, can I get a promotion? I, I don't know. I've, I've always worked hard and I, I guess I believe in a work ethic. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's not even for the results of the work, but what that work reveals about yourself. My daughters are entrepreneurs and I say to them, it's not about building a business. It's about how the business builds you, especially in tough times. And I want to ask you a, a question that we've got C-suite around the world through to entrepreneurs listening to this podcast. And sometimes it feels very heavy, the world right now, for all the reasons, the obvious reasons. And someone said something to me the other day, Linda, which really landed with me, which was try to manage the amount of news and social media you look at and so on, because no one person was supposed to carry the burden of the world. And here we are every day getting all the heavy news from all around the world that can take a real toll on our experience of life on a daily basis, especially cumulatively. And yet at the same time, I believe the future is a story we write every day, individually and collectively. And so as a marketer, as a professional storyteller, why are you optimistic about the future? What gives you hope despite all the headlines, despite what we hear every day? I am fortunate to see possibility in a lot of situations. We are living through some dark days right now, and there are days where it does not feel as though possibility is blossoming everywhere. That being said, when I read something, could be a book, mm. I see a painting, I meet somebody who's excited about the job they're about to take, um, I meet somebody who's founded a company and they're trying to fill a need that they think nobody has found before and maybe they're right. I thrive off that possibility and that keeps me optimistic. And I try really hard, Simon, even in those moments where I may not feel it, to be grateful to the people who are around me who are working really hard, who are trying really hard, who are still working their way up, so to speak. I'm where I am because of my team and the people I get to work with and my family. And I genuinely try every day to wake up and be grateful for it. And most days it works. Linda, I, I can't thank you enough both for the leadership and for the impact that you've had in your career and through the lens of GE and for showing us that constant reinvention and transformation and impact is possible over a period of time that's simply breathtaking and really excited to see how this next expression of GE comes to life and improves all of our lives. So thank you. It's really been an honor. Thank you for having me on and thanks for the kind words. Thanks, Linda. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. And you can always find out more information about today's guest in the show notes of each episode. Our show is made possible by a partnership between We First a strategic consultancy driving growth and impact for purpose-led brands, and Goal 17 Media that's building greater awareness of and financing for purpose-led companies. Make sure you follow Lead with We on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and do share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you'd like to dive even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Lead with We, which is now available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you on the next episode, and until then, Let's all lead with we.